And good evening. I'm excited to be bringing the word tonight. And I'll just tell you, so last week I did the, uh, I did the, the greeting and prayer and realized I said good morning, not once, but twice. <laughs> so we're already off doing a lot better, right? I, I know what time of day it is. <laughs> So uh, I'm excited to bring the word out of 1 Corinthians 15. When Brandon asked me to, to preach and bring a message to, to Stonebridge, I was thinking, all right, what's the easiest thing I could talk about? I'll just talk about Jesus for the whole night. This is great. <laughs> so uh, so it, it's going to be a lot of fun, and I'm, uh, I'm honored to be here. We're going to be talking about um, hope, right? And hope for life is kind of the the title of this message, but really where our hope comes from. We live in a society that's obsessed with hope. I don't know if you realize that. Every really good movie, even every great movie, generally is about hope. As evidence of that, the greatest movie saga of all time was founded on a new hope. Is it up there, Star Wars? <laughs> uh, even in Star Wars, right, they're wanting something new, right? They realize the world that they live in isn't enough. The world we have is broken. We want a new hope. We want something better. And I think that's true for every one of us. That's why we're obsessed with hope, right? We hope for a better job. We hope for more money. We hope for safety. We hope our kids don't do something crazy. Um, we, we hope that 2020 ends and ends quickly, we hope for our candidate to win the election, right? We hope for our society. We hope for our marriages. We hope for our insurance policy to actually pay for damages. We hope for so many things. But oftentimes, the things we hope in, we make that the end all, right? We think, all right, if we can just have that, then we'll have everything we truly need. Before we jump into 1 Corinthians, Jesus talked about a treasure in Matthew 13. In Matthew 13, Jesus told a story comparing the kingdom of heaven to a treasure hidden in a field. He says, a man wanders through this field and stumbles across this treasure, and then he joyfully sells all that he has so that he could buy the field and thus own that treasure. That treasure is the kingdom of God, right? It's not an earthly treasure. It's not all the things that we often hope for. It's something so much greater than that. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, a little background to the passage we're going to be sitting in. Uh, in, in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul is responding to a bunch of questions that the Corinthian church have sent. He's also responding to some things he's heard about them, some things they've challenged, some false teachings that they're dealing with. And Paul's near the end of that book once we get to chapter 15. He's about to kind of close it up, and he starts to challenge a specific problem they have, a specific false belief, and it has to do with the resurrection. The church in Corinth is struggling to believe that there is a resurrection, and Paul's about to destroy that in chapter 15 and also give them true hope. So he's challenging this false teaching, and I believe 
right? And so this is the whole premise that if we get the gospel right, if we get what we hope in correct, then it helps straighten out all the other areas that we need help in, right? It fixes all the sin problems the Corinthians were dealing with. It fixes all the false teaching that they had permeated within that church. So getting the gospel right is important. So that's where we're, where we're going today. And for, as verse 58 says in 1 Corinthians, the goal is that we would be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. That, that's my goal tonight. And for those of you who take notes, there are three points to this message. You're welcome. <laughs> Point one, the first sections in verses one through two, we're going to see the gospel to the Corinthians. And then verses three through seven, we're going to really get the gospel defined and really clear and crisp. And then thirdly, in verses eight through 11, we'll see the gospel to Paul. So how did the gospel affect him? So first, the gospel to the Corinthians. Before Paul spells out the gospel and makes it clear, he starts by giving the Corinthian church some gospel context. He goes back to the message they first received. You may not know this, but Paul was the one who actually brought the gospel to the Corinthians. He's their spiritual father. In, uh, in 1 Corinthians 4, he kind of tells that story. And when he brought the word to them, right, when he brought the gospel... He wanted to know nothing else but Christ. He wasn't trying to show off how good he is at public speaking. He isn't trying to show off how much he knows or how good of an arguer he is, but rather he just wants to share Christ with them, and that's it. He wasn't trying to argue them into Christianity. He's simply sharing it with them. So in verse 1, it says, Now I would remind you, brothers of the gospel, that I preached to you that you received in which you stand. He's reminding them of the message they first heard. He's taking them back to the first message and the most important message that they had ever heard. I've heard it said, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. Get that out of your mind, right? Preach the gospel at all times and if you're not using words, you're not doing it right. Uh, that's what Paul's going back to. He's saying, I would remind you of the gospel I preached to you, the message I brought. So he's looking at the past for them, right? The first thing that they heard. In Romans chapter 10, it, says, it makes it clear that how can they call on him whom they have not heard? How can they, how can they hear, call on him whom they have not believed? And how can they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching? The message comes by a verbal sharing. The treasure of the gospel, the treasure of new life with Christ is only received audibly, right? You hear it, you see it written, you believe it, right? So our, our actions are not the gospel. The gospel's a treasure that can only be shared with words and our actions are the response to that. So the gospel, it was shared to the Corinthians, right? But it needed something more than that. It wasn't just that they heard it and said, okay, now I've heard that. No, it needed to be accepted. The gospel which I preached to you, which you received, right? The Corinthian church took hold of the gospel. Paul's reminding them of when they first received it, right? When they first took hold. There are people, maybe even people here, or people watching online who have heard the gospel time and time again, and you've decided not to believe it, right? You know that mentally it's just like, eh, this whole, this whole Christianity thing, this whole Jesus dying for my sins thing, all right, it's a nice story, it's a good way to live my life, but I don't really need to believe it. 
Paul's challenging that here. You need to receive it, right? You need to accept it. There are others who may be thinking, hey, the gospel is something that I can put off to a later date. Yeah, I see that's important to get me into heaven, but I'm not dying yet, so I'll wait till I have COVID to get things straightened out. <laughs> Paul's challenging that as well. The Corinthian church, they heard it and they received it. They took hold of it. Paul's going back to the past, and then now we're going to see he moves to the present. So he looked at the past, them going to Jesus, right, them hearing the gospel and accepting it, but then he's going to move to the present. This past weekend, I was uh, hanging out with some new friends, some people I had never met before, and we were going to a, a park where our little kids could run around and have some fun, and while we were just kind of spending that, you know, that awkward moment when you're hanging out with someone, but you don't really know what to talk about, <laughs> and I was so encouraged they asked, Katrina and I, they said, hey, tell me your faith story. How do you get to know Jesus? Just like Paul's going back, they were bringing me back to that time. For me, I was one of those people who heard the gospel time and time again and chose not to believe. And that's a whole huge part of my faith story and recognizing I needed to take hold of it. But now I'm in a different place, right? I've chosen to believe. In verse, uh, later here in verse 1, it says, the gospel which I preach, which you received, in which you stand. The gospel isn't just for the past, but it's for the present as well. The Corinthian church needed, of course, to hear the gospel. They needed to accept the gospel, but they also stood in the gospel. They're established in the gospel. As Christians, we can often feel like we need to move past the gospel, right? All right, we got my, I got my ticket into heaven, now what? We may fall into that trap, but the gospel is something that establishes us in the here and now. That's exciting. That's good, right? There's not some huge deeper thing that we need to get as Christians. The gospel establishes us. But what does it mean to actually stand in the gospel? What does that look like other than saying, all right, I believe this and I'm just going to keep believing it? I'd like to offer that standing in the gospel is translating the gospel into every single part of your life, translating into every part of your life. When you're at work and someone sins against you, right, and you've got that kind of fight or flight mode that's going on, no, we stand in the gospel. We remember how Christ, how we sinned against Christ and yet he forgave us. When we've got uh, our, our little child that is uh, testing our patience, we remind ourselves of how patient God is toward us. When we're struggling in maybe a habitual sin, something we keep falling at time and time again, we don't shame, right? We don't feel the shame of it. We remember that, hey, Jesus died for that one too. We stand in the gospel. We allow it to translate, to adjust every single part of our life, everything about us. The gospel changes everything for me, changes everything for Paul, and it, cha he cha it changes everything for you as well. As uh, the old hymn says, he breaks the power of conquered sins and sets the captives free. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, his blood availed for me. The gospel changes every single thing, even in the here and now. So we talked about the gospel that when we first heard it, right? The past, then the present, we stand in it. But then it's by which we are being saved in verse 2, right? There's this future tense to the gospel. What is that, right? Well, is it just heaven? 
say it's a little bit more. Um, so it's something we stand in and by which we're being saved. The gospel is saving you right now and will continue to. Now, I don't mean that we need to be more saved than we are, but rather the gospel is what makes us more like Christ. Not saying that once we're saved, we need to be more, nor am I saying that salvation is some lifelong process that we only get to if we live a good enough life to the end. No, Paul's reminding the Corinthian church and Stonebridge church that if we want to be made more like Jesus in the future, right, as we continue to grow, we need to go back to learning, living, and sharing the gospel every day, right? That, that should be our aim. And then Paul throws this kind of weird phrase, unless you believed in vain. Does anyone else get there and they're like, kind of scratch their head for a second, unless I believe in vain? What does he mean by that? We have to remember in the Corinthian church, there were all these people who had supposedly believed the gospel, who were a part of the church, but were continually going into sin, and there was no repentance. They weren't turning from their sin and back to Christ. They were living in it and thinking that's okay. Some of you may have experienced this, but you know that when you're living in sin, when you're doing things that are contrary to what God has said in His Word, it kind of eats at your soul, right? It hurts. It's hard. And in those times while it's eating at your soul and you're asking questions that you wouldn't want to share with other people at church, well, one of those things you're wondering is, hey, is this whole thing real? Am I really a Christian? Am I really saved if I'm going to keep falling into this? You don't have a whole lot of hope at that time, right? Unless you believed in vain by obeying the gospel day in and day out continually, that's part of where our hope comes from. By refusing it, even later, we lose hope. Not saying we lose our salvation, but we definitely lose hope, and it hurts, and it's hard. Unless you believed in vain. Paul is telling the church in Corinth, he's telling Stephen, that if I don't continue in the gospel, I don't have hope, right? I'm hopeless. The mark of a Christian is that they continue with Christ, that they keep pushing forward, that when we fall back in sin, we take a couple steps toward the cross after that, right? We go toward Jesus. That's the mark of a Christian. That's the whole, the book of First John in a nutshell, right? We come back to Jesus even when we fall. So, we talked about the church in Corinth, right? The past, present, and future of the gospel to them. But we haven't even defined the gospel. I keep throwing out this weird Christianese word, gospel. And other than you've probably heard it say it mean good news, what is it, right? So it's literally good news. What does good news actually look like? What is the gospel? Paul summarizes the gospel in two points. You've probably heard of four spiritual laws. You've probably heard of the G-O-S-P-E-L acronym for the gospel to get it clear. Paul just simplified it like crazy because he knows if it's more than two, I mean, we're probably going to forget parts of it. Gets it as simple as possible. And before he says what it is, he says this is of first importance. Right? It is the primary message, the chief thing, nothing else compares to this. And it's two things. One, Christ died for your sins according to the Scriptures. It's the first point of the gospel. Jesus died for your sins. He came to earth. He lived a perfect life. He died the death that we deserve. He died in our place. 
2 Corinthians 5 says, He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. This is what's called the great exchange. All of God's holiness, all of our sin was swapped, right? My sin was placed on Christ. His righteousness was placed on me. I did not deserve it whatsoever, but He died for my sins. That is that is a major piece of the gospel, right? That's so important. And this was the plan from the beginning. This isn't something where Jesus just thought, oh man, these guys in the garden, they ate, they ate the fruit. What do I got to figure out to do next, right? What am I going to do? No, this was the plan from the beginning. In, uh, in Isaiah 53, a passage we've probably heard time and time again, starting in verses 4 through 6, surely He has borne our griefs, He's carried our sorrows, yet we esteem Him smitten by God and afflicted. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. That's the great exchange right there. That always was the plan. And He did this for you. He really did die. He was buried. He was in the ground for three days. People wrapped him up in linen, covered the tomb. And we talk about that every Good Friday. And you know the question I've always had, why do we call that good? If we stop here, this isn't good news. This is actually kind of dark news. Paul later says, if Christ isn't risen, then we have no hope. We of all people are to be pitied. The death of Christ isn't really the good news. If we stop there, you may ask why. This illustration may not fully sum it up, but, but follow with me for a second. Imagine you're driving down First Avenue. You're driving down, it's a little dark out, and you get a text message. You notice it's someone that you really want to reply to the text from, and you're wondering, what the heck are they saying? So you look away while you're driving, and you're on your phone, and you didn't see that kid. You didn't see it happen. Someone ran out right in front of you, and you know you're guilty. You know, I have, this is a huge deal. This is a problem. And you're sitting there contemplating what to do, and you're so stuck that you just decide, you know what, I'm just going to drive home. So you just keep driving. You get into your garage. You sit there for a second taking in your sin and how terrible what you did was. But again, you don't know what to do. So you just stay there. Right? You stay at your house, go back to your daily life. A day goes by, a week, a couple months have gone by, and no one has come to say you're guilty. You're watching the news, and you see that there's a trial for this young child's death, but you're not the one that's being tried. Someone else is guilty. Someone else who is not guilty is getting judged. That's bad news, right? You think of the worst things that could happen as an innocent man goes to jail for, the, for something someone else did. If we stop at Jesus' death, the gospel isn't good news. What makes it good, the difference between the story that I told and the gospel is that you were caught you were tried and found guilty. Your judge and executioner, the one who truly has authority, stepped down 
took your penalty, took your judgment, and then He completed the death sentence. He didn't just die. He came back saying, it is done. It's finished. Completed. Innocence has been attributed to you because someone else took the full penalty. So, the second point of the gospel is that Jesus rose again according to the Scriptures. That's what makes it good news. He came back. He completed the sentence. And this was, again, the plan all along. It was always the plan that Jesus would come back. It was never again a second thought. We see this in Isaiah 53, verse 10. It says, He shall prolong his days. In Psalm, uh, thir- Psalm 16, it says, The Holy One shall not see corruption. He came back, and He really did. Just like He really did die, He really did come back, to a, come back to life. There's all these witnesses that Paul then goes and walks through. He says, hey, uh, the apostles saw him, Peter, Cephas saw him. There were 500 on one day that saw him. He rose again. People saw it. Paul's letting the Corinthians know if you don't believe in the resurrection of Christ or the eventual resurrection of all Christians, go to the eyewitnesses. Go to the people that have seen it. They're still alive. Death doesn't win. It didn't defeat Christ, and it doesn't defeat us now. In a season when there are a lot of things to be afraid for, right? There's a lot of things to be afraid about, whether it be cancer, whether it be COVID, no matter what it is, we know that death doesn't defeat us. I am so encouraged. I've I know that all of us have probably sat down with those people where we know that, hey, they're on their last leg. They're about to go and be with Jesus. And as Christians, we have hope. I mean, sitting down with a believer, I I wasn't planning on telling this story, uh, but there was a guy I was reminded about. His name's Tom Strong. He was one of the elders at a church I worked at in Wyoming. And Tom loved the Lord. He was passionate about Him. And it was as clear as day. Everyone who knew Tom knew he loved Jesus. Tom died when he was around 50 of, uh, of cancer. It really ate him up. It was, it was tough. It was hard. It was one of, those, one of those deaths that you see coming and it hurts every day, right? That, that was Tom. When he finally passed away, we went to the house, uh, me and a couple other pastors, to be with him and his son, Nate, while we're sitting there and Tom's still in the room, lifeless, right? Starts singing the the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. It was the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. We have hope. Death wasn't the end for Tom. I'm gonna, I'm gonna see Tom again. He's about six foot something, and I mean, I don't know what his glorified body will be like. I wouldn't have been able to give him a hug because of you know the space thing, maybe. Maybe when we're both in glory, it'll be different. But we have hope as Christians. Death isn't the end. Death isn't the end. Again, this was in accordance with the, with the Scriptures. In 1 Corinthians 15, right? So when we get to the end of the chapter, when Paul puts a button on this resurrection chapter, he says in verse 55, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have victory, but we can't stop there. The resurrection of Christ, the hope we have in a living Savior, calls for a response. Just like hearing the gospel 
When we hear it, we need to respond with faith. When we believe it, there's a response that comes, and it's in verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now, Paul's saying this from experience. Uh, he's He's lived this whole gospel thing. He's gone through it. He's grown in it. And that gets us to our third point, right? So, we, we looked at the gospel to the Corinthians, saw the past, present, and future of the gospel for them. The gospel's in clearly defined. It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But then the gospel to Paul, right? So, what's the gospel to Paul? Paul is going to give a little bit of a a micro-testimony, and he does this time and time again. We already talked about the value of going back to our own faith story. But Paul goes back, and the way he starts it is, as one untimely born, as one born out of due time, as someone born at the wrong, in the wrong century, right? He's, he's recognizing that he was the last person to see the risen Christ at this point. He was the last one. There are so many religions that we see where it revolves around someone had some experience with either an angel or seeing Jesus or something like that, and then the religion turns into all about the person that saw him. Uh, you think about Mormonism, right? Uh, it's all around Joseph Smith. You think about Islam. It's all about um, Muhammad. Thank you. <laughs> it's all about Muhammad and what he saw. Paul saw the risen Christ, and he didn't start a religion about himself. What happened when he saw the risen Christ, the real Jesus, it humbled him. He was the last person to see Christ, right? This is a big deal. He had a crazy conversion story that you think he would be shouting to everyone saying, I'm the one Jesus picked. I'm the one he wanted to show himself to. He doesn't go that way. The fact that he saw Christ after the ascension made him humble, not proud. It brought him down saying, God is holy. He's perfect. I'm not. I'm wretched. He's righteous. The only response is humility. The only response is humility, Putting it, seeing yourself in the right light. Paul's humbled. He doesn't think God chose me because of my zeal, because of my, my, because of my knowledge. He rightly sees that his sin etern should eternally separate him from God, but he did something so much better. You know, Paul was there stoning Stephen, the first martyr. He was the one holding their coats so people could get a real throw at him when he died. Paul, when he actually got saved, when, when Jesus revealed himself onto the road to Damascus, road to Damascus, he was actually traveling to go and round up Christians, take them down to Jerusalem so that they could be tried and executed. That's what Paul wanted. He saw, I am a sinner in, the in front of a holy God, and it humbled him. It brought him to his knees. And he responded with action. We see that later in, uh, later it says that he worked harder than anyone else. The only response to what Christ had done for him was to give his all for Jesus, right? He found the treasure in the field. He stumbled across it and said, I'm selling all I can to own that treasure. This is mine. I'm th this is worth everything. Paul finally had hope. He finally had hope. In verse 11, 
He kind of starts to wind down this section. He says, whether it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. The message is more important than the messenger. It's not about the person who was talking about it. It wasn't Paul's eloquence or his abilities. It wasn't even to make his name great. He's not starting a religion for himself. It was simply to share the message. So we preached and so you believed. The message was more important. He said, we preach the gospel, the death of Christ for your sins and his resurrection. Doesn't matter who told you, what matters is that you believe, that you accept it. I would ask you, how are you going to respond to this message? How are you going to respond to what Christ has done for you in taking the full cup of God's wrath, giving up his life in your place? If you haven't yet believed, I would beg you today, October 11th, 2020, make something good come out of 2020, believe. <laughs> That's what, that should be our response. Believe. Accept what he has done for you. If you've believed this before, right, and this is, you're just hearing this thinking, yeah, yes, I needed this, right? I would encourage you, go back to the gospel every day. Go back to what Christ has done for you time and time again. Remind yourself of it. We need it. I need reminding of the gospel day in and day out. So remind yourself of it. And also, know that this hope we have in Christ, this hope we have for a future life beyond what we experience now, isn't just for me, isn't just for you, but it's for all who believe. We have a mission to bring this message, to bring this good news that Jesus is alive to everyone we know. That's our task. We have that responsibility. So I'd encourage you, if you haven't believed, believe. If you have believed, keep believing. Keep going back to the gospel. And also, be willing to share it. Don't be, uh, don't be afraid of the gospel because, again, this is a matter of life and death. This is something people need to hear and need to hear it regularly. I'm going to close us in prayer. The worship team's going to come back up and sing one last song. Um, but I would encourage you, before we pray, just one last, one last comment. Choose to believe. Don't let today end without making that choice. Lord, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you truly are risen. You truly did die for our sins. And the thing that makes Good Friday good is that you rose again. Lord, if there are those here who don't know you, haven't believed in you, haven't trusted in you as their Lord and Savior, I pray that you would impress on them their need to do that now. Lord, that they wouldn't go on another day without knowing you, without experiencing you, without believing in you. Lord, I pray for those that are, those that are sick, that, that are recovering right now and watching online, I pray that you would remind them that this sickness is not the end. Lord, we have hope. Lord, hope not just for today, but for tomorrow. God, you are so good. Thank you again for, for bringing this message to us. In your name, amen.